We've been preaching through Matthew's gospel and now have come to this section in which there are these healing narratives. Let's briefly pray before we begin reading at Matthew 8, verse 5. Our Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will bless the preaching of the word to our hearts this day. We have a very simple narrative, a very beautiful narrative, and you know the hearts of everyone here. You know our joys and our sorrows and our concerns and our worries. May we see here the Christ who is the Redeemer of sinners. And Father, every week we need to be reminded that you are a gracious God to sinners. May that truth be impacted deeply upon our minds and consciences this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning with verse 5 through verse 17. This is the Word of God. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening... They brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Oh, the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and how powerfully we have seen it as we have gone through the Sermon on the Mount and how we also saw it last week as Jesus cleansed a leper. You will recall that to cleanse a leper is the equivalent to raising the dead. Now we come to this wonderful passage, and we see the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law and others who are healed, and we see the authority of Jesus simply to speak and it is done, or to touch and a woman is healed. Let's look at these simple narratives together. Beginning with the centurion's servant, we read in verse 5 that this centurion came forward appealing to Jesus, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. This centurion, of course, was a man with a lot of experience in life. Centurions were Roman soldiers who commanded 100 men uh, as a part of a legion. The centurion was a man who commanded, and it was done, who drilled, who inspected, who had special assignments, and there would have been 60 such centurions in any Roman legion. The centurion's approach to Jesus, therefore, I think is quite astounding, don't you? Because he comes with utter humility. First of all, he's concerned for his servant, which I think is a wonderful thing. 
And would not usually a commander like this come to one who is of a conquered nation and speak to them differently than he has of Jesus? He speaks with utter humility to the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to him and asks if he will heal his paralyzed servant. Jesus responds there in verse 7, I will come and heal him. Now, it's possible that this is a question and not a declarative statement. You might recall that ancient manuscripts were not punctuated. And so we have to make decisions when we are actually translating. Uh, Is this a declarative statement? Could this be an exclamation? Could this be a question? Those are the sorts of things translators have to do. The word ego, I, is first here, implying emphasis. And it could very well be that Jesus is saying, I come and heal him. In other words, you're a Gentile. Why should I go with you? And if he does that, the Lord Jesus does that to elicit the faith of this Gentile. But in any case, notice the response of the centurion. Certainly not. Absolutely not. My home is not fit for your greatness. I'm not fit for you to come. And so the centurion replies in verse 8, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion's illustration shows his humility as well, as we see in verse 9. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When the centurion, as a Roman commander spoke, Rome spoke. When he said to his servant, do this, he did it because Rome was speaking. When he said to someone, go and make sure that this happens, it happened because he had the authority of Rome behind him. And what he is saying is, I know that when you, Jesus, speak, that God speaks. That when you speak, the Lord God is the one who is commanding. And so the illustration shows that this centurion rightly esteems Christ and has enthroned him in his estimation where he belonged. He's recognizing that the method of salvation is in the hands of the Lord, that he can save anyone, heal anyone, at any time, in any place, anywhere. He can do whatsoever he wills, and so he comes in humility, and he asks of the Lord Jesus that he would do this favor for his sick servant. Jesus can heal with a word. Think of it, people of God. He needn't look into the matter. He needn't investigate the matter. He needn't follow up to see if it's happened after he has spoken the word. His word is sovereign. His word is divine. Just speak and my servant will be healed. Do you know that no one has ever appealed to Jesus in vain? No one has ever come to the Lord Jesus and appealed to him in vain. Oh, the answer is not always the one you want, but he never, never turns a deaf ear to one who comes into faith uh, to him. And so the centurion's attitude is one of utter humility. I have nothing of which to boast. I have nothing to give. There's no reason that you should do this for me. I am simply in humility asking that you will do this for me. And that should be the attitude, the hard attitude of all who come to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon somewhere said, Be not afraid to approach him, however unworthy you are, for he will put the best construction upon your broken petitions and interpret them always to your gain. If you are saying, I'm humble and therefore I'm not coming to Jesus because Jesus is great and because I'm not worthy, I'm not coming to Jesus, that's not humility, that's false humility, it's a kind of pride. The truly humbled man, woman, or child is a person who sees that my absolute need is so deep and so desperate and so great, I must come to Jesus. 
And so this humble man comes to Jesus with this need that only Jesus can meet. But did you also notice that as the centurion comes to the Lord Jesus, he not only comes with humility, but he comes in faith. He comes believing in Jesus. He had faith, which is God's sovereign free gift. And he comes with with faith to an astonishing degree. This word astonished, or I think it's translated marveled here in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus is astonished at the faith of this Gentile. And this is the only time that this word astonished or marveled is used of Jesus speaking about someone else. This is usually the word that others use when they speak about Jesus. They're astonished at his teaching. They are marveling at who Jesus is. But Jesus actually uses this word as he looks to this needy, believing Gentile. The centurion is coming close to recognizing who Jesus is. He has a biblical Christology in a nutshell. I'm not saying he understands all the ins and outs of Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, where he is going, but he knows this. He knows that only Jesus can save, only Jesus can deliver, and he knows that his object of faith must be Jesus. He understands that. He recognizes that. And so let me ask you the question, do you understand that? Do you understand what the centurion saw? That Jesus Christ must be the object of your faith and the sole object of your faith. That only he can heal and only he can deliver and only he can save. And now here we are, post-resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus having taken place. 2,000 years of church history, we know so much more about Jesus than did this centurion. Do you believe in Jesus Christ who died on a cross for sinners like us and rose from the dead? Do you believe him? Do you trust in him? You may say, well, pastor, wait, wait, you said in the text, and I've read it just here today, that this man had great faith, and this this Lord Jesus marvels at his great faith, but I don't have great faith. The faith that I have is infinitesimally small, just so, so, so terribly, terribly small. Let me give to you this encouragement. Even though it's a wonderful thing to have great faith, and we should long for great faith, we should pray for great faith, It is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the Savior in whom you believe that saves you. Come to Him as you are. Don't wait until you have great faith. Come to Him as you are and entrust your soul to Jesus Christ and He will save your soul. That was the centurion's approach, humble and believing. But you know, in this simple narrative, we also see the authority of Jesus, don't we? And we see it in two ways. We see the authority of Jesus first in that he heals with a word. Verse 13, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus is totally unpuzzled. He is in control. He didn't say, Well, this is too much for me. He's not like a human physician who has to diagnose a case, go and read a lot of books, maybe get online and research and scratch his head and puzzle over a case. No, no. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, who spoke and light came to be, who spoke and the worlds came into existence, who sustains all things by the word of his power. And when he says, be healed, you're healed. When he says, be saved, you are saved. You see here the readiness of our Lord to show mercy, the willingness of our Savior to bless. 
his utter willingness to do us good and to respond to genuine faith in him. But we see his authority in another way in this passage. We see it in a very awesome way. We see the authority of Jesus over the destinies of men. Because in this passage, he speaks of heaven and he speaks of hell. You see here in verse 11 how, as he's marveling over the faith of this centurion, that he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying there's a day coming in which there will be this great eschatological feast, this great banquet at the end of the age. And you know, the Jews thought it was their prerogative to be there, that they would be the only ones to be there and only some of them. Jesus, of course, is reflecting a passage such as Isaiah chapter uh, 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is your God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this salvation. And so Jesus says, hey, you think you're going to be the ones who are there? You see this Gentile? This Gentile who has come by faith, he's going to be there in that great eschatological feast. He's going to be there with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and more importantly, with me. And in the presence of the living and the true God, rejoicing and feasting because of the salvation that has come to him by grace through faith in me. He's going to be there. And this Gentile, this Gentile is just an indicator of what is to come. Because we saw already in Matthew, the wise men came. We come to the end of Matthew. Go into the nations and proclaim the gospel and disciple the nations. The Gentiles will come to him. What a wonderful thing to consider that you Gentiles sitting here today have been saved by the grace of God and that God has purposed that Gentile believers sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because Paul tells us, does he not, that the true Jew is the one who has faith in Jesus. He speaks of heaven and how we should rejoice in that as believers in Jesus. But he also, in this awesome passage, speaks of hell. And he says that the sons of the kingdom will enter into that place in which there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this comes up time and again in the Gospels, time and again in Matthew. Jesus regularly speaks of the wrath of God and eternal punishment of those who reject him. Look back at chapter 7 and just be reminded of how, beginning in verse 21, the Lord Jesus speaks of the judgment to come. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Time and again. Let me be plain. Jesus claims 
to be the final judge of all people. He will send some to eternal life, those who have trusted in him, and he will send others to eternal punishment. Nowhere does Jesus speak of a second opportunity after death. There's nothing in the Bible like that, nothing in the Gospels like that, nothing in Jesus' words like that. And as I have pointed out to you time and again, this doctrine of hell, awesome though it is, is necessitated by our sin in view of God's holiness and also by the teaching of the Bible about the cross, because that's what the cross is, Jesus bearing the hell of his people. Now today we live in this pluralistic society in which anything goes and all things are considered equally right. On the plane coming back late Friday night, I was sitting beside two gentlemen. And the two gentlemen were talking about all sorts of things, politics and religion. And when they got to the whole religion discussion, it's God, whoever God may be, God, whoever you think that he may be, we need to just show respect to one another in these differences. And they leveled out all religions. And so I let them continue on with their conversation. A few minutes before we landed, 10 or 15, I broke into their conversation and I said, gentlemen, I don't hear very well on airplanes. I don't hear well in any case, but I couldn't help overhearing your discussion. And as a Christian, I want to tell you that Jesus says he is the only way that you can know God. And he proved it by raising, by being raised from the dead. He proved it by his resurrection from the dead. The only way you can know God is through him. The gentleman next to me was from the islands. He said, you know, I've just come from a funeral. And I heard the minister say all kinds of of gripping things. We're all for praising this morning. That's... I heard the minister say all kinds of gripping things. And he said, you know, maybe there's a reason you're sitting next to me. And I said, my friend, if you trust in Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he talked about his works and I talked about grace. He talked about his works and I talked about grace. And I jotted down some names of pastors and a couple of churches in the area where, where he lived. I hope that man is moved by the Holy Spirit and follows up. But you see, it's not simply who's sincere. A lot of people are sincerely wrong. There's a right, there's a wrong, there's truth, there's error, there's heaven, there's hell, and Jesus is the judge at the last day. Now this seems cruel to people today. But the reason hell seems cruel to people today is that we have lost sense, the sense of God's holiness. It's not cruel if it's just. And it's just when God sends someone to eternal punishment. Now, I address you as the people of God. I address you as fellow Christians. But I'm also aware that there are undoubtedly in my flock some that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are some about whom I have personal concerns. I don't accuse, but I, I feel that I, I must take you before the Lord. And I have a burden for your conversion. How can I bear that you die when I see that you're preoccupied only with what you see? Only those things, of the things of this world. You have no regard for eternal matters whatsoever. I know that Christ can save you. But I want to point out something very solemn in this text. 
When we read here in verse 12, the sons of the kingdom, that is, religious people, Jews, will be thrown into outer darkness in that place that will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To put it in our parlance, he's talking about people that sit in church every Sunday are going to be lost because they have not trusted in Jesus Christ. And the evangelical church is in danger of losing all of this. De Jong and Kluke have written a book, Easy to Read, Why We're Not Emergent. Easy to read, you may want to get it. And they have a section in their little book, Why We Need the Wrath of God. Let me give you their reasons. I'm not going to comment, just give you their reasons. We need the wrath of God to be honest about evangelism. We need the wrath of God to forgive our enemies. We need the wrath of God to risk our lives for Jesus' sake. We need the wrath of God to live holy lives. We need the wrath of God to understand mercy. We need the wrath of God to grasp how wonderful heaven will be. We need the wrath of God to be motivated to care for the impoverished brothers and sisters around the world. We need the wrath of God to be ready for the Lord's return. If that piques your interest, get the book and read it. But most of all, read this book and submit to its authority. Otherwise, if you take the wrath of God out of the Christian message, it is no longer Christianity. Don't call it the Christian faith, because it isn't. The only way we can understand what God has done for us in Christ on his cross and in his resurrection is that we needed a substitute to bear our hell for us. Do you know that? Do you get that? Do you understand that truth and that reality? And so we see the authority of Jesus in the healing of the centurion's servant. But as we move on in the text, we see the authority of Jesus in healing Peter's mother-in-law. There she is, wasting away with her fever. Poor, untouched woman. And why would I say this? Because it was Jewish tradition that forbade the touching of one who had a fever. And that's why it's so remarkable in verse 15 when it points out, Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Jesus touches her. Jesus is not defiled when he touches a needy person, when he teaches a needy sinner. Jesus is not defiled. He has come to heal the defiled. He has come to save the defiled. And so Jesus' touch was his command just as with a centurion's servant. His word was his command, and it was so immediately effective that verse 15 tells us she got up and waited on Jesus. It was as if she had never been sick. And then others came. Undoubtedly, they heard about the cleansing of the leper. They heard about the centurion's servant. They heard about Peter's mother-in-law. And so we read in verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And then there is something that is a surprise. Did you notice it? A surprising reference to Isaiah 53 in the midst of the healing ministry of Jesus. Verse 17, this, this what? This healing, this casting out of demons, this, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now this is from Isaiah 53. We read that earlier as our Old Testament lesson. We sang it in the middle hymn. It is a servant of the Lord passage in which the servant of Jehovah comes to be a substitute for sinners. 
And everywhere in the New Testament, everywhere, everywhere else in Matthew's Gospel on three occasions. In 1 Peter chapter 2, by his wounds you have been healed. Everywhere, Isaiah 53 is linked with the cross, with what Jesus did to save us from our sins. And since the New Testament uniformly links Isaiah 53 to the cross, why in this instance is Isaiah 53 linked to Jesus' healing miracles? That leads us to the third thing we want to see. Healing and the atonement. You see, Matthew is not saying that God always wants you to be healed. Indeed, sometimes the Lord does will that his people be sick. It's an abuse of this text. Some have said healing is in the atonement. And so if you're not healed, it's because you don't have strong faith or because you're not working hard enough, which is a terrible thing to put upon people. It's an abuse of this text. That's not what Matthew is saying. What is Matthew saying? Matthew sees that sickness is caused by sin. Not necessarily our personal sin, but that sickness and death and dying and suffering all has come into the world because of the fall and rebellion of man. And in linking Isaiah 53 with healing, Matthew's gospel is saying, don't you get it? Sin must be dealt with. That is why Jesus came into the world. And it is that to which the miracles point. They point ahead to the cross. They point to the reason under the sickness for which Jesus came. Jesus is not only dealing with sickness, he has come to deal with the root issue, which is human rebellion and human sin. Matthew writes after the cross, and he gets that Jesus' healings were done on the basis of what he would achieve on that cross. And so Jesus has dealt with the root cause of sickness, people of God. He has dealt with the root cause of pain and suffering and tears and crying. Jesus has come and has gone to the cross, and he has dealt with our sin with finality. It also shows us something else, this reference to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. In connection with the healing ministry of Jesus, it shows us that Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord who came to serve us. Don't you find it remarkable that God-likeness is shown in serving? That he who thought equality with God was a thing not to be grasped because it already was his inalienable possession became man and served God and served you on a cross. And so that you, as a believer in Jesus, whose sins are forgiven, when you serve others, you are never so much like your heavenly Father or the Lord Jesus Christ as when you do that. And so every healing is an anticipation. Every healing miracle that we will see in Matthew's gospel is an anticipation of the future for those for whom Christ died, that a day is coming in which you will no longer say, I am sick. A day is coming in which you will no longer say, I have a fever, in which you will no longer say, my body is gripped by a terrible disease. When I was with Dr. Davis, he called me up and said, David, if you know him, he's an exuberant fellow, have dinner with me. We worked it in between things and we celebrated 
the end of his 42nd round of chemotherapy. And there he is praising God. Every healing, every healing we see here is Jesus saying the day is coming in which there will be no sickness and there will be no more dying. Every healing says to us what we read in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's that to which the healing miracles of Jesus points as he points through the cross and through the resurrection to the eternal state in which we, God's people, will dwell with him without sin and without sickness forever. The day is coming in which you will say, I am not sick anymore. And praise God, the day is coming in which we will say, I no longer sin. So bring your case to his divine method. Lord, here is my heart's need of redemption. He's not perplexed about your case. He doesn't throw up his hands. He shows no surprise when it's done. He clearly displays his own power that points to the cross. There was a day in which, as a young man, I walked into a service lost, and I walked out saved because he spoke, he touched, he healed, he saved, he redeemed, he delivered. Now, Matthew is leading us on. He's leading all of his readers to an ultimate confession. He's leading them through, and he's showing them who Jesus is through his miracles and his healings. And, and then he leads them on until they come to chapter 16, in which Peter confesses, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he leads us on through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the Great Commission at the end of the book, in which we see that all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted unto him. He wants us also to make that confession. You know, I can sum up this section by giving you three things. Here we have the authority of Jesus to speak and it was done. We have the authority of Jesus to determine eternal destiny. And we have the authority of Jesus to redeem from sin. Are you now ready to confess this Christ, the Son of the living God? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is beyond measure able to save sinners. No case is beyond him. No case is too hard for him. Never despair. Pastor, my sin is deep. My sin is great. Ah, the Savior is greater. His grace is deeper. Show me the sinner, says John Owen, that can stretch his sin to the dimensions of the grace of God. Our Savior is greater than your sin. His grace is greater than your rebellion. Somewhere, Charles Spurgeon said, The power of the word in answer to the prayer of faith is now our Lord's way of blessing 
And this method exactly suits the wish of true humility. Come to him, humbly come to him in faith. And may the Lord in his mercy set the captive sinner free. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.